Nicolas Cage is probably one of our generation's definitive actors. Hello and welcome to Cage Fighting. It's your main man, Andy Gillard. Hope everyone's keeping well in the world right now. Hi everybody, Mad Guy here. Hope everybody is fan dabby Let's find out if dogs are colourblind. <laughs> Hello everyone. <laughs> uh, I mean, that, that weird opening is no weirder than the film we're here to discuss, <laughs> which is... Amos and Andrew, a film from 1993, which even though it's got my name in, I have never heard of it before. I feel like because it's got Andrew in there, I should know about this movie. But it was a complete fucking surprise to me, this film was. Matt, have you ever heard of this film before? No, and I'm stunned it was that late. I thought that film, I thought this film was like like late 70s, early 80s. <laughs> <laughs> Stu, do, do you know this one? Is this new on you? Because it, it feels like a very Stu film, I've got to be honest. After having watched it twice, it very much is a very Stu film. <laughs> but no, I, I, I mean, basing that, I mean, thinking off the top of my head, the only one I can think of is Stuart Little, and obviously I've seen that. Um, but no, I'd never, never even heard of Amos and Andrew in my entire life. I mean, I... There's Amos Lane in Wensfield. I mean, that's the that's the most Amos I could ever think of. <laughs> this when you said that this was the title of it, I presume it was like like Matt said, like early eighties, like early cage stuff. Mm. That it was so obscure that we'd never heard of for a reason. But not not, not early nineties. Yeah, early nineties, at which point like Cage has done Vampire's Kiss, he's done Raising Arizona, he's done Moonstruck, like he's done some big films at this point. And obviously Samuel L. Jackson is Samuel L. Jackson for crying out loud. Like these are known people at this point in their career. And this film has gone completely under the radar for me. Um, I, d- I don't know what it is about the pairing of Sam Jackson and Nick Cage. It feels like they should have been in a shit ton of films together as well. Like th- there's something about the, the craziness of both of those guys that it's kind of weird that as far as I know, this might be the only film they've done together. It feels a bit weird to me that. Yeah, I think they're, as we'll, we'll discuss, I think their chemistry was pretty good in the film as well. So it's, it just seems a shame if this is the only time that happens. Mm. Uh, the other name in this that I recognise was Brad Duriff, who is Charles Plague. He's the voice of Chucky. So I was kind of looking forward to it just to see what, what Duriff does in this movie, to be honest. But a bit, bit of an odd one, his uh, role in all of this. But yeah, we'll get into that as well. Uh, the director is E. Max Fry, F-R-Y-E. I'd never heard of him before, and with good reason. This is his only directing credit. He's mostly known as a writer. He did Something Wild, Arena Brains, an episode of Band of Brothers, and Foxcatcher. Um, a really fucking odd collection of movies mm. to have written on, like a bit all over the place. Uh, IMDb describes this film as a Pulitzer Prize writer buys a cabin. The neighbours get suspicious when a stranger, quote-unquote, breaks in. They see a black man and call the police, who starts shooting at him. The sheriff tries to cover up involving a white petty crook. Bad idea. (laughs) 
Andrew Sterling has always dreamed of leaving the big city and escaping to a secluded island. No stress, no hassles, no problems. That is, until he met another man trying to escape. meets Amos. I have a shotgun. You have a frying pan. And in one wild night... A one million dollars! And, uh, and a helicopter! Put your weapon down. Let your hostage go. Two guys from two different worlds. Maybe you've heard of the Pulitzer Prize. You won that? I did. How much you win? In one fell swoop... ...became partners in crime. We're gangsters. Freeze! Sounded like they were getting pretty chummy to me. Two people who came to an island for one reason. Get in! To escape. Sit! Not you. Nicholas Cage. Contributing to the delinquency of a minor. What do you have to say about that? She looked 18. Samuel L. Jackson. Amos and Andrew. A comedy about two mismatched men trying to escape from each other. Andrew Sterling is a wealthy urban black author. He buys a new house on a Massachusetts island. While setting up his stereo system, his neighbours, the Gilliam, oh, sorry, the Gilmans, spy him through his window. They did not realise the former residents had sold the house. The Gilmans call the police. The commissioner and his men arrive, meeting Gilman there. They explain to the police, when you see a black man on this island with a stereo in his hands, you know exactly what he's doing. They also assume that there are hostages being held at gunpoint. They've not seen the kids who were the previous family's children or any guns, but they just assume that he's a black man. There must be some shit going down in this this quaint little well-to-do suburban island in the middle of nowhere. The police, including one of the guys who is rocking blackface at this point, <laughs> set off Sterling's alarm. That car alarm. Uh, when Sterling comes out to turn it off, the police open fire on him, shooting dozens of shots aimlessly in Sterling's direction. At the same time as this is going down, the press arrive, having heard the commotion over their police radio. They firstly interview the Gilmans to show themselves to be fame-hungry whores. They then interview the police chief whilst the police are waiting to get a line into the house. When the line has been set up, the chief realises his mistake that the man in the house is its owner and he is not a burglar. To avoid the bad press, the chief decides to call on Amos Odell, and that's Nick Cage, a criminal they currently have held in their cells for contributing to the delinquency of a minor. To which Amos replies, she looked 18. <laughs> Nick Cage is playing a diddler in this film. They offer Amos a deal, break into the Sterling's house and hold him hostage, then give up to the police and they will ensure his safe passage out of the state. The police give Amos a shotgun and a lift into Sterling's house. Amos ties up Sterling. Sterling believes Amos is there to kill him due to his novels that he's published about his views on white America. That's the first act at half an hour. Matt, what did you think of the opening on this one? Well, firstly, when that Blackface cop runs into the car. I howled with laughter. <laughs> I literally could like it, I, it, it was just the way it was shot or something. I don't know when he's fucking when his face or his body hit that car. 
I just burst out laughing. It was hilarious. Um, I I really didn't know what to expect going in. Um, but I enjoyed the opening. I really did. I thought that they set the scene pretty quickly of what was going on. I already felt a tone of what this film, it felt very close to Airplane in terms of its humour and its gags. There was it wasn't as visual as Airplane, but it there was a it felt very much of a similar way for me, and um, I liked where it was going. I liked that even at the very start it was a bit of a socio political context to it, and um, I was intrigued to know more. And um, I, I, because of, we see Nick Cage at the start, but then a good 20 minutes passes until we see him again. I didn't really know how they were going to get him involved back into the story because I think because Sam L. Jackson's in it and he can carry a film on his own, I almost felt like Cage wasn't needed mm. when he came back in, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed the opening. Mm. It, it was kind of convoluted how they got Cage back into it, but like not in not necessarily in a bad way. It, it was a very much... It was needed to progress the storyline, but it's just a bit weird how they did it, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I quite enjoyed the opening, but I, I do like Samuel L. Jackson, so it was good to see him get a good good chunk of screen time in this. Stu, what did you think? You know, I was I was in pain. <laughs> I, I, I was laughing that much. I, this is right on my street, and as soon as... I think it was, it was before the blackface cop and the, and the car alarm... I'd already gone anyway. As, as as soon as you saw that 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 couple, exactly the kind of people that you know walk down the canal together, and they go on like they do marathons together, and the kind of people who in autumn have like cardigans across their shoulders and and read the Independent, <laughs> you know exactly who these people are, and they're not they're not racist because they've got black friends. They're, they're exactly <laughs> that kind of person. Yeah. yeah. And as soon as soon as the, it, the words came out of their mouth, I thought I started giggling. I thought this is going to be superb. And for it to be Sam Jackson and it, playing someone quite subdued, because you, mm-hmm. you don't do this very often, really. Um, there's a few. I mean, even Jurassic Park. I mean, he's not really in it, but that much. But it, he's still a bit of a character in that. This is quite. Well, as we go to what he says to him towards the end, um, the the whitest black man ever, <laughs> and he, that's what he's he's playing someone who's very middle class. He's probably more middle class than the rest of the people on this island. Which it's a bit like the Isle of Dogs by the sound of it. <laughs> it's not really an island. It's just a bit out there, and there's a bit of water around it. Mm, yeah, I think so. We <laughs> yeah. are. Same as yourself, though. I thought it was a good opening, so I, I, I was more than happy to carry on with this one. Which, like, we've watched plenty of films which start out a little bit shaky, I think. And I had fears on it when I'd read that it was supposed to be a race relations sort of film. I thought that this could go very badly, especially in a early nineties film. The police chief contacts Amos, telling him to let Sterling go, and he will keep his name out of the press. Amos turns on the TV to see that the chief has lied to him. His face is all over the news. So Amos is now refusing to play along and give himself up. The chief sneaks into the house, demanding Amos surrender. 
He doesn't take any time to express concern for Sterling whatsoever and even admits to his not wanting Sterling to be living on their island, dropping a hard N on Sterling at one point. He did. He did, didn't he? Yeah. Like, it kind of felt like it came out of nowhere from that character. Like, whilst he was a prick, he didn't feel like he was a racist prick with it. Mm. So, yeah, I think that the film sort of turned on the use of that word for me. Sterling hit the chief with a frying pan and Amos and Andrew escape. Ending up at the Gilman's house, when the Gilman's return home, Amos takes them hostage also. The police chief wakes up following being hit with a frying pan and talks to Amos, demanding that he releases Andrew. Amos reaffirms that he wants his ransom and confesses to having taken the Gilman's too. Whilst holed up at the Gilmans, the four of them watch the Gilmans press interview tape where they admit they called the police because they saw a black man. Amos had ordered a pizza and by this point the pizza delivery girl arrives. Amos tries to bang her. She she reveals that she's 17 and so he invites her to go to Canada with him. He's full on diddler mode at this point. Amos gives the pizza girl the videotape where the police chief and the Gilmans admit to the whole fuck up and tells her to give the video to the press. He's trying to get the story out. Hour and ten minutes, second act over with. Stu, thoughts? I think you've um, you skipped over the part where they're opening the, he's opening the drawers in the bedroom and there's that whole drawer full of dildos and sex toys and then, <laughs> and then that kind of, wherever that bondage gear was, and as I said before, these are exactly the kind of people that you know live in your town. And <laughs> yeah, it, again, it, it, it just carried on. I mean, I mean, the fact that where where the hard end drop, and then he, he when he he kind of says it back, and he's like, "Oh no, I was just saying that to you know what I mean." And it's like it kind of just bats it away, and you think, "Well, mm. no, you, no, it's not, you're not doing it just because you know what I mean." You know. You did it because you're racist arsehole. And you've all joined in on this. I mean, you've tro- you've shot someone because he tried to turn his car alarm off. <laughs> so, but yeah, I th- the whole thing with the dog as well, and it's like he doesn't like black people. And, and when he says, um, well, he won't like black people if you don't shake his hand, no, poor. It's just, <laughs> just stupid things like that. And it, <laughs> It's just like, like Matt said, it's like very airplane, very that kind of... What are they? Romps, I suppose. Mm. Um, just silly, silly films. And this carried on and on and on. And you kind of got the other side, despite being a very a questionable diddler. Cage's <laughs> <laughs> character did seem like an okay kind of guy, just on the making some bad choices that he constantly makes. Yeah. Mass, what did you think of the middle portion? Um, again, I, I was enjoying it. You know, it slowed down its interest a little bit, and they got a few moments of like trying to f- character progression. But you know, they'd go into their like family history, or they'd talk about how they're not too far away. And then I think it's this point we might be a little further on actually into the third act where he talks about how he's the whitest black guy he's ever met. I'm not sure if that was a bit later on. Um, and they go down that route a little bit with it. And the the final portion of this act is where it started to lose me a little bit. I was getting a bit bored. Not bored, but I was like, right, you know, you've, you've, it's been good up to this point. Let's hurry this along a little bit. But then 
hovered over, noticed there was still another like 30 minutes to go. And I was like, mm. yeah, I don't know how they're going to, how they're going to finish this off now. I was looking for it to be finished off around that point and it had, it still had a good half an hour to go. Yeah, I, I'm sort of in agreement with you. I felt like the middle portion was just a little bit over long. It felt like they should be wrapping it up by the time they got to the Gilmans and it, they didn't really, like as you say, at that point, there's still a good 30 minutes left of the film. Um, I felt like some of the comedic bits, like that part where you, Stu, you'd mentioned about shaking the dog's paw, like that I thought was quite nice. But then there were other parts where they tried to play like quite black comedy and I don't think they quite hit the nail on the head with it. It almost felt like mm. it wanted to be two different kind of films in parts. But I did like that that part where he was trying to get him to be friendly to the dog because the dog's colourblind sort of thing. Like he doesn't see that you're a black man and that Amos is a white man. Like I quite liked that there was that message behind it. And the way they made out that it was the fact that it was the criminal who didn't really give a shit about the colour of people's skin where it was the well-to-do souls on this this island. They were the ones, the quote-unquote liberal elites were the ones who were actually just racist scum so it was interesting i just wanted it to move on a little bit more i think at sterling's house the police finally make their move not realizing that amos and andrew are no longer there there is a scuffle between the police and a crowd of black protesters from the city which ends with sterling's house getting set alight the whole story with the black protesters coming from the city i found a really weird Side story that played absolutely no part to the main film until they arrived at the island. They had a lead guy who was basically a faux reverend Jesse Jackson. They seemed to mobilise and march from the mainland to this island within an hour and seemingly for the reason they were protesting was that a black man was being held hostage. It just felt a bit weird and very disjointed to the rest of it. And like the stereotype of the, the, the evangelical black man, like I, I felt a little bit uncomfortable watching like it felt like it was a piss take of them rather than something to promote. I don't know. I think this seems very much like it's referencing something that happened in the early nineties that we're just missing out on through mm. the context of time. And the fact that you're not even mentioning who the who the main guy of this was as well. Like, Who was it? I never clocked. It was Gus Fring. Oh shit! I, yeah. I yeah, I never even clocked that. Giancarlo Esposito was uh, yeah okay. We, we, we I never even that. clocked it. Yet again, mentioning do the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the other week, as you hear yeah. this, but <laughs> yeah. He, he, he even talks in that in that Gus Fring way. To start with, when he's re- mm. when he's concentrating, then when he gets distracted by looking at the telly, um, you think, "Oh yeah, it's just playing the same character again." <laughs> um, but yeah, I, 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 that must be what it is because I was the same as you. I, I didn't see why this contributed any in any way to anything that was going on. It must be a commentary yeah. on some kind of black liberation movement of some kind. Well, look at how much Samuel Jackson looked like Malcolm X. Mm. Mm. Do you know what I mean? They're they're tapping into that, and that I mean that was my crazy. So I'm gonna to have to quickly think of another one on the fly. But <laughs> um, like, if you look, Google a picture of Malcolm X now and then look at his character, like it's a spitted it's a spitted image of it. 
uh, of the two. I think like they, they were playing into that's to the point where I was trying to think of who Cage would have been around that time. But Odell is like a that, that that's like a cowboy character name of some description. I just couldn't work out who. But like, there's a there's a famous Odell, and not like the the NFL player. Um, and I couldn't work out who it was, but yeah, I think there was like this whole Malcolm X, the Reverend Jackson kind of thing that was going on just to, 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 to in the background. And they talked like, um, um, Sam Mal Jackson's character talked about how the FBI was involved and there was a conspiracy to kill him much like Malcolm X had and stuff like that as well. Mm. Um, so I think that was why that, that evangelical character was in there to kind of reinforce that, that kind of image that they wanted to portray. I think. Okay. Makes sense. At this point, the pizza girl gets the videotape to the press, revealing the racism within everything that's happened this evening. The police chief sends a man with bloodhounds to find Amos and Andrew. The bloodhounds track and chase down Andrew. Amos manages to save him. Using the chief's wallet Amos that Amos has stolen at this point, Andrew redirects the bloodhounds to chase the chief down, just as the press get a hold of the incriminating tapes. Andrew and Amos have bonded... Amos drops Andrew off on the mainland to meet his wife and they go their separate ways. That's the final act and it comes in at just over 90 minutes in total. What did you think of the ending, Matt? Uh, yeah, I'm going to be honest, it was hampered by the fact that I wanted it to end now. I needed, like, I just wanted it. Every second that this went on was diminishing from what I'd really enjoyed up to, like, that hour's point, if I'm honest. Um, so, yeah, the ending was absolutely fine. Like, it was nothing... It was it, it was okay. It was a, re- a sweet relief, more than anything, to be honest, <laughs> um, because I didn't want this to be something that ended up being tipping the scales into. Okay, now we're talking about a bad film now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. Stu, thoughts? Yeah, it was mm, it was fine. You know? it, it wasn't as funny as the first hour. Um, so I had to kind of <laughs> have some kind of resolution to everything that was going on and. There was the kind of the nice touch as well with his wife at the end, where you led to believe that, like, yeah, the whole thing of yeah, you, she's white, and he was like, "Why do you say that?" And he's like, "Well, you're a rich black man, of course, you're going to get the white girl and all this kind of." And then it turns out, oh, well, no, she's not at all. And he didn't put him wrong once; he just let him believe what he wanted to believe. And mm. there's obviously something in that. And I thought, oh yeah, okay, fine. He's just he's just with a black woman. It doesn't matter. But there you go. Yeah, it was, it was that part I liked. I mean, it, it did seem, it seemed weird to say it was a bit rushed because it sped along for an hour until this point. But yeah, I think that that was the only criticism for me that it wasn't as funny as the first hour. But you can't have every it being a complete farce, I suppose. Mm. I, I suppose the subject matter wouldn't lend to to that, would it? I suppose. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I feel like the the final act was just a means to an end. It was like they mm. needed to put a cap on it, and and they just did. Like the middle bit felt so long that they just needed to wrap it up, and which I think they did, like within like twenty minutes, really. So it was what it was, really. I think that, that's all I can say about it. Uh, so the budget on this film was seventeen million dollars. Uh, the box office return was just under ten million. So really, it was something of a failure which might be why I suppose we've never heard of it before. Mm. According to the fan ratings on IMDb, the best films of 1993 are Schindler's List, Jurassic Park, Stu's favourite Groundhog Day, In the Name of the Father, which I've never heard of, and True Romance. 
Box office wise, Jurassic Park grossed over three hundred and fifty million. The Fugitive, The Firm, Sleepless in Seattle, Mrs. Doubtfire all came in in places two to five. Um, Indecent Proposal in the Line of Fire, Aladdin, Cliffhanger, A Few Good Men. Two Tom Cruise films in the top ten this year. So it's a good year for you, I think. Yeah, I was just thinking in the name of the father, ring a bell. And I thought it's exactly your kind of thing as well. Daniel Day Lewis, Pete Postlethwaite. Oh, I do love Pete Postlethwaite. IRA bombing thing. You you must have seen it. I don't think I have, but, but to be fair, the name doesn't ring a bell, even if I have done. Emma Thompson. Hmm. Sounds interesting, to be fair. I may have to uh, try and source that one out. Um, it's an 8.1, Not bad. Uh, so it's quite nice to see that in the top 10 films, they're not a single sequel in the bunch, which is unusual because obviously sequels always tend to do better than their predecessors. So, yeah, 1993, not a bad all year. Um, obviously, the scores on this one are... Unusual, I think, for what I think you're, we're all going to assume they're going to be. Um, Stu, what do you think the scores are going to be, critics and audience-wise? Oh, this is what I am thinking. <laughs> because of the subject matter at hand, 93. My, my instinct says critics are going to hate it, audience is going to love it, but the fact that it bombed and didn't make it, even make its money back kind of says the opposite. So I... <laughs> I'm a bit torn with this one. Um, I'll, I'll go in my. I'll go where I thought first. Four, 40 critics, sixty audience. Matt, are you in agreement? Higher, lower? What do you think? Uh, I, I think the problem is because it's neither a just innocently friendly buddy cop movie or an out and out not buddy cop, but you know buddy movie. Uh, Oh, it's and it's not an out and out black comedy. I don't think it appeals to the masses or appeals to the niche either. So I don't think many people would like it full stop. So I'd probably say like forty for both, to be honest. Mm. Um so IMDB it's got a five point seven, so it's a very middle of the road rating. The audience score on Rotten Tomatoes is thirty one percent. Um and the critical score is seventeen percent. Ooh. It doesn't look like anyone really likes this film. It just sort of exists. Took a battering. It did a bit. Um, so the critical reviews, Lawrence Cohn from Variety, a one-joke sketch that doesn't work as a feature. Uh, Vincent Canby from the New York Times, a handicapped satirical farce whose roots are not in life, but in other better movies and sitcoms. Uh, and Malcolm Johnson from Hartford Current. Um, Fry proves a remarkable, inept director with little sense of pacing farce or creating absurd characters. So, yeah, I mean, looking at the actual critical uh, reviews on here, they don't have any who've left any comments that have got a positive review. Like, all the positive reviews are literally just they've given them a two out of four but not said why they think it's okay. So, yeah, it seems to be... Um, you, know, I think it, you know, I think it is now. I think we're watching it now in the benefit of we have hindsight of 20 years ago 
Oh God, no! It's thirty years uh, ago. Nearly thirty oh. years ago. <laughs> so we have the hindsight of going. Well, it was it was accepted back in the day, so we can kind of gloss over. So you know what I mean, like when you can mm. look back on things and appreciate it at the moment. Whereas actually, at the time, they probably thought that this was either too close to the knuckle or it was. But we can look back on it now and think, mm. oh, it's 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 old, so it's fine. And then we could just enjoy it for its comedicness of it and not actual what was going on socio-politically at the time. So maybe that's an element of why we enjoy it probably now than they did back then. Yeah, I'd sort of agree, but most of these reviews are from like 2008. So maybe mm, not. Mm. Mm. So, I, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, um, obviously not everyone hated it. Um, Amazon.com have this film rated at 4.6 out of 5, which is the same score as Face Off. 90% of the reviewers give it a 4 or a 5 star. Uh, one 5 star review titled, Hilarious from start to finish, both stars are on top form. Amos and Andrew is a hilariously funny comedy about a small-time criminal and a top journalist thrown together by bungling police force. This film is laugh after laugh and the characters develop. This a superb film and must see for every fan of either Cage or Jackson. That's pretty much the unique half-decent review I found of it, to be oh. honest. The rest were all in German, so they were really difficult to make out, even with the <laughs> translation button. <laughs> uh, so the good, the bad and the crazy. Stu, start us off. I mean, the good, I mean... <laughs> I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I, I think just looking at it and what I said earlier, 1992 LA race riots, four policemen acquitted of beating uh, Rodney King, racial tension with the police. Maybe this is a reaction to that kind of thing a year later. Maybe this is why that it's too close, that it's too close to the, to the knuckle, like Matt said, that, Oh, anything that can take the piss out of races, it's obviously it's it's shit. You can't you can't do that kind of thing, which would be a shock for me for the early nineties. But whatever. But yeah, the good, um, the good. I really enjoyed this film. I really, this is I like this kind of airplane, um, animal house. This kind of silly nonsense film. Anyway, it's shut your brain off at the door. But this one, it had it did have a bit of a message behind it and yet it was incredibly stupid. And like one of them things said that these people don't exist. They absolutely do exist. Even 30 years later, they exist and we all know who they are. And in the last two years, more than anything else with the, the, wherever you think about George Floyd, whatever, this is probably more important now than it was then. Sickeningly it is. Which makes it, <laughs> from a satire point of view, even better. Because we know the police are racist. They've been proven to be racist for the last 30-odd years. And this, uh, for a lot of the time, nails it perfectly for me. Um, so in the hindsight, with the benefit of time, obviously they, they, they couldn't have predicted that. But I think if this came out now, it would get a better reaction than it did then. Look, judging of what you've just said, um, the bad is the bad that the last half hour didn't really match up with the, the, the fun kind of tones of the first hour of it, like I said. Um, but again, that's that's picking at what is a very silly film. Um, 
and the, the crazy, the, the crazy, the fact that it was made in the nineties anyway. It, it's got very much. It's very. It wears eighties on its sleeve. This film, <laughs> it's very kind of set in that kind of early early to mid eighties kind of bubble of like. Oh, we mentioned fast tones on here before that, like, and there's been referenced in Stranger Things season four quite a lot. When no one in the entire world has talked about fast times at Ridgemont High, apart from me on here in, in the last <laughs> two years, um, but all that, all them kind of things, them kind of films like the the John Hughes films of the eighties. This kind of feels like it should have been one of them. It came out in ninety three, which is ridiculous, really. That it even got released in in a time of that kind of racial tension, but fair play for the fact that he did because I like this film. I like this film a lot. <laughs> Matt, what about yourself? So my good, my bad, and my crazy are all the same. Are all the same <laughs> thing in that this is such a social commentary. It's good in that it probably at that time to Stu's point was as relevant then as it is now, which is good. It's, it's good that mainstream actors are being taken part in projects that are talking about this, as because sadly it's still as relevant then as it is now or the other way around. But it's at the detriment sometimes of the comedy of this film, which is it's one thing or the other, but it can't be a fully hilarious film because of some of the ways that it tackles this. It can't be a full social commentary and sometimes trivialises it because in other parts it's really slapstick and takes away from it. Um, and the fact that they have put this together in the first place and, and have made it work is crazy in a way because you can come out of it and think, actually, God, yeah, you know, we really do have an issue in the police force of these countries or could watch it and just have a proper laugh with it as well. Um, it's, it's, just a, it's just a shame that with one with one hand gives, the other hand takes away with this film because it's not as funny as it could have been because it wants to touch on the nerve of a social commentary, but then it also can't explore that fully because it's still got to be funny. So it's a shame, really. You know, it feels like a kind of a mix, a missed opportunity for one of two films. I'd like to have seen both. Mm. I'd have liked to have seen a full. I'd like to have seen the full version of each of the things that they're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. So my, my good, I've put down that I, I quite like the fact that they've they've made this film with a message that sadly still rings true today. As Stu touched on, like the issues within the police force due to racism. I mean, with thirty years on, and that shit, like that stain, is still there within the police force. And it's good that there's not just this film, but other films out there that still touch on it. That still try to make people you know conscious of this that we as a society can and do need to do better um so i quite appreciated the thought behind it but my bad is that i felt that tonally this film was all over the place like there were some quite thick black comedy elements to it like the absurdity of the situation the fact that uh, you know a black man can't sit in his own home without being accused of a crime and then they threw in these slapstick moments like uh, Brad Dourif's blackface, the S&M stuff at the Gilman's, uh, the police chief tiptoeing around. Like, it, it felt like it was a bit of a mess. Like, I feel like it either needed to be a black comedy or it needed to be slapstick. And by trying to serve both masters, it didn't serve either, ultimately, for me. And I felt a little bit let down, especially as we moved on 
into the last 30 minutes of this film because it really dried up quite quickly for me. That first hour, the first half an hour was amusing. And then you had a bit of a, a, a chin scratch in the second half an hour. But then it was just like, okay, I need something now. And never quite got that gut punch that I wanted from it, unfortunately. And the crazy, which I'm just making up on the fly because I realised I forgot to put it in, uh, the fact that Cage and Samuel L. Jackson, they've done three films together. Like, two of the biggest names in cinema. They've both got Mm. hundreds of credits each. And all they've done together is this film. Then in 1995, they did a film called Kiss of Death, which I've also never heard of, and then did nothing together until 2009's Astro Boy. Like, I... I feel like Hollywood are just missing out on what could be a really good buddy cop movie, just starring those two. Maybe they're maybe like when one was up, the other was down in terms of public interest. Must have been. Yeah, quite possibly. But yeah, I feel like there's there's definitely a, a trick been missed there. <laughs> but you got to think though. I mean, after after Pulp Fiction and after Con Air, like ninety seven, ninety eight, both of them. That would have been. I mean, maybe they were too expensive together. Maybe that's what it was. Mm, could be. Could be. That's they, a really fair point. Yeah, they would both wanted to have been the A star, wouldn't they? In it, so it, maybe mm. that is it. That that is a very good point. But yeah, I, I want more Cage and Jackson in my life from now on. Like, if they don't make another film soon, I'm going to be really disappointed after <laughs> having seen. Like, I did enjoy their their work together in this. Like Matt mentioned earlier, I did think they had decent chemistry together. So, yeah, I want more of that, for sure. So, Stu, obviously you've pinned your, your colours to the mast. Did you enjoy this film? Yeah, yeah, I really did enjoy it. And it was... I've watched it twice in the space of a, six weeks, or so, <laughs> which I very rarely do for this. I mean, I, I wanted to watch it again just to see if it wasn't me just being slightly tipsy and being me about these things for the first time round <laughs> because of the... Because, just because of the subject and being kind of semi-serious for a change, I thought, okay, is is it just me being funny? And but I oh, know I really did enjoy it, and I did I did giggle along. Obviously, not as much, but to an equal degree the second time round. And yeah, I, I really like this film. It's not it's not going to like tickle the top five, obviously, but mm-hmm. it's in the top half of ones that we've watched in the last two years easily. Yeah, Matt, what about yourself? Yeah. Pretty much spot on, yeah. I I enjoyed it. It had um, it had some good elements, not not flawless by any stretch of the imagination. But as far as um, labors of love that we do for this podcast, it was a pleasant it was a pleasant uh, experience as opposed to some stinkers we've had in the past. Mm. Um, I, I'm very middling on it, um, and mostly because it is a film of two halves. I felt like the first half was fine, and the second half was a bit of a slog. It, it was a bit tonally inconsistent for me, which made that last 45 minutes of this film feel like an hour and 45 minutes. Like it, it was a bit too much of a drag. So I, I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it either. I think as you both said, it'll be somewhere in the middle once we've come to the, the very end of our Cajun quest. Uh, so based on this film and this film alone, was Nicolas Cage good or was he bad? Matt? He was good, but it wasn't the star of the show. I think Sam Jackson actually takes that gong for me. It's a yes in terms of the question, the binary question, but yeah, he had a few moments, like his delivery of the line, you know, dogs are colour blind, was great. And a few other bits um, 
he had some kind of you know he he was a very visual performance from him in his his body actions in some scenes, but you know he didn't blow me away either. I, the, a number of other actors could have done that, and I don't think it would have mm. took away from the film too much. Stu, what do you think? Yeah, you you could have got someone like Charlie Sheen to do this, and it would have been absolutely fine. Um, but yeah, to to do what he did, I mean, the fact that he he's an admitted paedophile, and you, you still like him as a character, <laughs> it kind of kind of says all you need to know, really. And then, yeah, yeah, he, he was he was good, but yeah, Samuel L. was better. But that's not the question. Yeah, that's that's for a future uh, series of films to watch. Um, I'd left this blank because I really don't know what I think. Um, as you've both said, anyone could have given that performance. There was nothing particularly Cajun about this movie. And as I'd mentioned earlier, by 93, we've seen him in Raising Arizona, Vampire's Kiss, Wild at Heart. We've seen him give fucking balls to the wall mental performances. And... This just felt really subdued from Cage and not in a good way that he needed to give an underperformance to allow Jackson to shine. It just felt like he was there for the money almost. It, I think I'm going to give him a bad on this one, if I'm honest. I, just, I don't think there was enough there for me to really say, yeah, he was good. Not that he was terrible, but he just wasn't. It's like... Fifty-one forty-nine, as we've done before, like mm-hmm. it's just on the the wrong side for me. So no. Uh, so the final question: If you enjoyed Amos and Andrew, you may also like Stu. Finish that sentence. I mean, for the for the kind of buddy comedy race stuff, then there's obviously Beverly Hills Cop and Lethal Weapon. That's the obvious ones to choose for that. But I think it's got more like more. It's got more in common with something like Police Academy than anything else. <laughs> and obviously, four of the seven Police Academy films are excellent um, and very laugh out loud funny, even now. Mm. So, I, I'd, yeah, I'd go, I'd go, if you want to laugh, go and watch Police Academy. If you want some race relations, the other two franchises. And that's, that's stealing like nearly 20 films, but there you go. <laughs> Um, it would have been, um, oddly, you know, you'd have think, how the hell is he tenuously linked these, uh, train spotting two. Um, <laughs> and the, the reason for, for one scene and one scene only, if you want to talk about kind of social commentary, which I enjoyed the most about this film, there is a scene where, um, where, uh, Ewan McGregor's character's name escapes me and, and, um, and sick boy go to a... Catholic bar, or it's or it's the other one. It's it's either a Protestant bar or a Catholic bar, mm. and they're the other. They're the other one, and um, they go in there to try and like scam them out of money. They know straight away the locals that they're not the right one, <laughs> um, and they basically have to try and convince them that they do. And they do this song. They they make up a song off the fly, and um, it's just hilarious because all the locals get dead into it, and it's massively racist. And well, not racist, it's sectarian, and it's like it's just the way that it just shows that these people in this pub are going absolutely wild, even though like they're just talking about an, another religion. It's just if you like that kind of social commentary thing, I think you'd like that scene, and therefore probably like the way that um, Train Spotting Two kind of leaned in that direction. It was really fun. 
Excellent. I still haven't got around to train spotting too. I don't know why, because I love the first one and I, I love Irving Welsh's stuff. So, yeah, I've got no excuses. Uh, my answer, and bear with me on this, <laughs> Four Lions. I think okay. it is yes. a better, yes. funnier, more heartfelt film about being socially aware of different races. I think Four Lions would is a better film than this that touches on similar aspects. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, th- that's my answer. Right, so that's another Nick Cage film in the record books. If you've seen this one or any of the other films we've ever discussed, please get in contact. And it's cagefightingpod at gmail.com on the emails or on the socials at cagefightingpod, and that's Twitter and the gram. Um, obviously, because you're listening to us now, please make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode. Uh, thank you very much for joining us once again on our journey through Cage's back catalogue. Uh, and finally, for this week, Stu, would you like to say goodbye? Never black up in 2022. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> Matt, would you like to say goodbye? Take it easy, everybody. Check in on your pals and have a great week. And it's goodbye from me. And remember, be excellent to each other. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,